a pretty uh, high claim, you could say, uh, to talk about today. Uh, let me ask you to share with us a special meal. Give me uh, maybe a special meal in your life, one that meant a lot to you and why. What, uh, when have you sat down to a meal, maybe stood up to eat, I don't know. Anyway, you had a meal and it was particularly important in your life. Not an average meal, not even a good meal, but a great meal. What made it special? Got an idea? Yes, Kate. The effort. The effort. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. That makes sense. Really so, uh, and presumably not the normal thing that she would cook. And, uh, no, I can't so. even remember what she cooked. But it was gluten free. And really special. Thank you. Great. Anything else? Other meals that we've enjoyed that have been particularly special, Debbie? I mean, Christmas dinner. We always brought that down after. Being together makes it so special. The food's great, but it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Good, thank you. A couple more. Special meals in our lives. <coughs> yes, Barry. Uh, there's one cake I attended the uh, two single sisters in the Harrow Church decided that they wanted to thank the marriage for um, what they do in the church and invited uh, three or four married couples down um, that didn't know each other that well for the church and, um, and cooked for us, served us, wouldn't eat with us. But actually, just serve all the married couples. That was just amazing. Mm -hmm. right. uh, that's special, isn't it? Wow, mm -hmm. yeah. excellent, super. One more, one more special meal. Yeah, we've enjoyed. When, Go on today. When, when we were young, my mom she really used to prepare a stew over the weekend. Yeah, because what she cooks over the weekend, she freezes it for the rest of the week. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. So that Sunday stew was quite something. How do you? All the ingredients freshly bought from the, from the market and the amount of effort she actually puts in. Sometimes I hear everything is just too much, yeah, but, <laughs> but having a fresh food um, on Sunday afternoon feels rewarding. Yeah. Mum's cooking. <laughs> Can't beat it, really, can you? Fantastic. There are special meals we've all enjoyed, I'm sure. Um, sorry. And one special meal for Penny and I was the reception at our wedding. Yes. Now, not a very good quality picture because it's a scanned-in print. Um, a 32-year-old scanned-in print. So, there you go. I'm going to ask you, though, can any of you recognize, some of you would definitely recognize a couple of people in the picture. You can see Roland Brown. Roland Brown is, that's right, this is Roland Brown, now a member of the Birmingham Church, right? And there's somebody else that most of you will know who they are, whether you recognize them in the picture or not. I'm giving you a little test. Simon will know, Patricia will know, Dawn will know, most of us will know. So, <laughs> I know the picture is not terribly clear. 
No, that's one of Penny's uncles. I think that's your uncle. Um, yes. Phil. Phil. I think that's your uncle Phil. This is Tanya Lloyd, going back to the early days of the church, oh, wow. married to, to James. And there are a few others. Okay, the person you're supposed to be recognizing is this one. Yes. Who is this? Who is that, Dawn? It's Charles Aliku. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, it is Charles Aliku. Yes. He's got hair. He's got hair, yes. yes. <laughs> that is Charles Aliku, who my flatmate at the time, until, well, until that day, and I, we got married. So there you go. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's one of a few pictures of our reception. Uh, it was a very special meal. But it wasn't the most special meal because after that, of course, we went on honeymoon. Um. And we went on honeymoon. I went with this beautiful young lady picking flowers and all kinds of fun things in uh, the north of Wales. And we got married on the Saturday, the 24th of August. So it was our anniversary this last Thursday. But on Thursday, the 29th, we had a very special meal um, because <clears throat> it was my first attempt at cooking. Uh, uh, since we got married. So we had this little cottage, self-catering cottage, and um, on the th I think Penny must have cooked the other days, and we went out to eat. And on the Thursday, I decided I was going to cook. I don't remember what I cooked, but what I do remember is we sat in this lovely, isolated Welsh cottage. I cooked a meal. We had a, a one candle on the table. So it was a candle lit dinner. And at that point, as we were eating together, I felt... I felt overwhelmed with the realization and the gratitude that we'd actually got married and that Penny had agreed to marry me. And for the first time in my married life, I, I, actually, I cried over that meal. I think it might be the last time. I'm not quite sure. I haven't <laughs> cried. I cried very often, but I remember shedding some tears. I remember crying just out of how amazing it was to sit here with, there with Penny a few days into our married life. That was 32 years ago. I still feel very grateful uh, that we're together. And it was a, a memory that, I, that meal was a memory I don't think I'll ever forget. And it wasn't about the food. I don't know what I cooked. You don't know what I cooked, do you? No, neither of us remember what I cooked. <laughs> but I remember being there. And some meals are very special for various reasons. And we're looking today at a very, very special meal. Let's read that passage here in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now at the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, uh, that Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, and make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, and I think this is a very interesting phrase, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. I drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So stop there for today. Very special meal. The Passover meal was the most special meal if you were um, a member of the Jewish uh, nation. Uh, the Passover was incredibly important. The greatest festival of the year, celebrating the most powerful of God's miracles. The Exodus, the escape from Egypt and what God did to protect his people. That's what it was all about. And I put a bit more detail on the handout you can look up for yourself later about how the Passover meal actually worked. We don't have time to go into that today. But essentially what they're celebrating is that they went from slavery to being set free. They were celebrating that. You would if you'd been a slave and <clears throat> you'd been set free. You would celebrate that. And they did. They were going from being just a hodgepodge group of people to being a nation now. They had an identity. They, had a, they also received the covenant. Their relationship with God was affirmed. Before that, their worship of God seems to have not been very clear in how it was conducted. But after going to Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments and all of that, they understood what their relationship with God was all about, this covenant between them and God. They went from being people with no purpose to people on a journey to a particular destination as they went through the desert and ultimately ended with the promised land. They had an inheritance. They had something to look forward to. What an incredibly important event that, that exodus was and how appropriate it was to celebrate it with a special meal like this once a year. But even though it was so important and so special, Jesus was about to transform it to make it into something different. And you can sell, tell this in the way he sets it up. I rather like this. It's a bit like some cloak and dagger thing, the way Jesus tells his disciples to look for special clues. Go and find a man carrying a jar of water. What's the significance of that? Surely there were lots. Well, actually, women carried jars of water in that culture. Men carried flagons of, like, in, in um, animal skins of water. So if you found, saw a man carrying a jar of water, it was very unusual. So it looks like Jesus has set this up. Like he's arranged it in advance for some chapter to be carrying this jar of water. <clears throat> the disciples would find him and they'd have this sort of uh, code phrase. The teacher asks, where is the guest room? I don't know exactly how it was all done, but there's something very special that Jesus has already planned. He knows how important this meal is. It's like booking ahead into the restaurant, but doing a bit more than just that. He's, he wants them to understand. He understands. He wants his disciples to understand how different and how important this meal is going to be. 
It's his last meal with his disciples before his death and before his resurrection. They, can't, of course, don't know that just yet. But he does. So, a special meal that's being transformed. Now, for us, what does it mean? Well, for us, what we understand from this meal and from what Jesus talks about, we're giving his body for us and giving his blood for us and establishing the new covenant, is we now have a new covenant. Not just the law, but the spirit in our hearts. We have a relationship with God, not through a priest, but directly with God. And so that's what we're celebrating, this transformation. Jesus is the great liberator. The Israelites were set free from physical slavery in Egypt. We are set free from spiritual slavery to the forces of this world and condemnation of sin. We have a different future. We inherit something amazing. We have become a people of God. Not a physical nation but bonded together as brothers and sisters by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are celebrating every time we take communion. And we're going to be taking the communion, the Lord's Supper, some emblems of the bread and the wine and the body and blood in, in a short while. And this is what we are celebrating. Something more important than the Exodus. Something more amazing than that. We, are, we have been set on a new path. A path that begins now but ends in eternity with God forever. So we have that destiny, that inheritance to look forward to. Ephesians 1 says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed our inheritance because of the Spirit living in us. And we have that because of what Jesus has done. I think this is important because what Judaism was looking forward to, even in celebrating the Passover, they were looking for a new Moses to lead them out of slavery to the, essentially of the domination of the Romans. But what God was going to send them was not another Moses. He was going to send them another lamb. Passover lamb was, was, was slaughtered at Passover. Jesus was being sent by God as a lamb, the lamb of God, to be essentially slaughtered so that we could be saved. It's interesting that I think in our culture we really value three kinds of people. We look up to three kinds of people. These, these are all illustrated by characters from the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. So you have Bilbo Baggins, who is the struggler. He's on a heroic quest, but he's the struggler. And we relate to him when you watch the films or characters like his in life, because, you know, we feel like we're strugglers a lot of the time, right? I mean, the title of one of our classes is going to be How to Be a Good Enough Parent. I mean, those of us who are parents, we feel that struggle to be a good, just a good enough parent. Can I make it? Can I be good enough? Can I be a good enough spouse? Can I be a good enough friend? And so we relate to Bilbo Baggins. We like his struggles because they're like our struggles in a way. So you've got the struggle. Then you've got what you might call the Sherpa, represented here by Ar Ar Aragorn. Aragorn. Thank you. And he's like the Sherpa uh, image where this is someone who's gone ahead, who's gone down the trail a bit further. They know the way to a certain point and they can guide you there. So he'll, this is, he intervenes every now and again. He comes into the story and he helps out because he knows a few things. He knows a bit more. He only knows more than Bilbo Baggins. He knows more than a few other people. So he leads the way. He's heroic in that way. He doesn't have uh, what Gandalf has. We'll come to him in a minute. But he has that. And we like that. We like those who've been down the road before us. And we need those mentors, you could say. People who a bit more experienced than us. Maybe not an expert, but they've gone ahead. And so those are valuable. And then, of course, you have ultimately Gandalf, who represents, we have Gandalf, who represents the sage, the wise one, the one who has the answers. May not always tell you the answer, but he knows the answers. And gives you a little bit of wisdom, just as you need it. 
and that's his role. And we like the sage, we like the expert, though sometimes we decry experts, we actually all use the wisdom of experts, whether they're in your profession, uh, to help you with your health issues, or to other aspects of life. And so we have these three figures, the sage, the sherpa, and the struggler. And I think, in our world, most people want those. And we need those, I think we all do, to some extent. But what the world doesn't want, generally speaking, what people are not looking for is a saviour. Is someone to tell them, well, actually, I appreciate all your opinions, but actually, this is the way. Someone who says not, not just struggles in the way, or has gone part of the way, or can tell you a lot about the way and show you the way, but someone who is the way. See, that's the difference. That's Jesus. He's not a Moses. He's more than a Moses. He's the way. And when we take communion, we celebrate that. That's more than a, a Jewish person could do in the Passover. We celebrate that we have the way, and we know him, and he knows us, and he loves us, and he died for us. He died for us. That's the big difference too. Romans 6 reminds us of all this. Let's just read this because it's such a great passage to remind us of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and how. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning that, uh, so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been, we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves, there's the slave imagery coming back from Exodus, no longer slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. And for those of us who have had the privilege of knowing this, of experiencing this, of being baptized into the death of Christ and raised with him in resurrection to a new life, we celebrate that every time we take communion. That's one of the reasons we take communion, is to be reminded of this. It's interesting. I don't know the thought process that Jesus went through. But when he perhaps was thinking about how can I leave a lasting impression on my disciples? And how can I help them to remember the, the core of what I'm about, my life, my death, ultimately the resurrection? What shall I do? What shall I give them? He doesn't give them a, a physical thing. He doesn't even just leave them a teaching. To give them what he needs to give them, he gives them an experience. He shares a meal with them. It's an act for us to perform. 
now that he is physically gone, but is spiritually still with us. As it says in 1 Corinthians, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is to remind us of what Jesus has done until he comes, until we go to be with him, in a sense, or until he comes. This is the big thing that helps us. The meal that we share in communion keeps our eyes on the hope before us until he comes. Remembering things is very important, and, and hope is so important. I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with my hope from time to time. I have despondent days when I'm fed up, and I feel like I'm, I'm struggling with, with regular sin, or I'm, I'm just not getting far, very far in my Christian life, or I'm not performing very well as a Christian, or as a husband, or as a dad, or something. And you know, I struggle with my hope. But the meal gives us hope, because it reminds us and the consistent reminders keep our hope, keep us kind of swimming. I don't know if you've heard about this story, but let me introduce you to our friend, our friend the rat. In the 1950s, they did an experiment. They wondered uh, what would happen. Well, I'll tell you the whole story. So they, they did an experiment, and they put rats in a bucket of water, or a tub of water, and just to find out how long they would swim. And the maximum that a rat would swim was 15 minutes, and then it would drown. Then they did uh, a little bit extra onto this experiment, and they let them swim for 14 minutes, 14 and a half minutes, and then they pulled them out, gave them a short rest, put them back in, let them swim for another 14, 15, just up to 15 minutes, took them out, a little bit of a rest, put them back in. They did this over and over and over again with the rats. And then they put them in the bucket of water and just left them there and to see how long they would swim. So bear in mind, before this, they would swim for 15 minutes maximum and drown. After this procedure, time after time, they would swim not for 15 minutes, not for 15 hours, for 60 hours. Wow. 60 hours they would swim before drowning, before giving up. They had learned something. They, had, they knew they would be out of the water just for a short period. They knew hope was available. And I don't know the exact parallels between how rats' brains work and human brains, but I can relate to that. That if I'm consistently reminded that there is hope, that God is with me, that there is a destina destination for me that's better than what I have around me, that I can make it, then I find greater endurance in what I'm going through at the time. What are you struggling with right now? What are you struggling to have hope for? Maybe the communion is the thing that can help you. Because as, you, as we sit there and we have this bread in our hands, the, the bread that represents his body given for us, as we sit there with a little bit of grape juice or wine or whatever in our, in our hands, remembering that this represents his blood shed for us, this is what gives us hope. It's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that uh, those of you that have not taken this worthily are fallen, people are falling asleep. I mean, spiritually falling asleep, maybe even physically dying. It's not entirely clear, but they're, they're, they're missing out because they don't understand what's going on here in the communion. And it's not magical. It's not something magical happening with the bread and the wine, but it is something deeply, powerfully real spiritually if we remember why we're doing it and what it's really all and God has given us ways to remember what Jesus has done for us.
One last thing from uh, the side of things. Some research on memory and what helps us to remember things. There are many things that can help. But some things in particular that can make a big difference to remembering things are these four things. Repetition, emotional connection, singularity of focus, and visual images. If you associate, try and associate things you need to remember with these four things, you will very likely remember them very clearly. And it just struck me as I read that research that all of these are represented in the communion we take every week. There's repetition. We do it every Sunday. We, and that helps to remember that Jesus died for me. That's right. And the blood is for my sin. That's excellent. Emotional connection. If you think about, <laughs> if you think about what the bread and the wine represent, the, the death of the Son of God and his death for us, there's an emotional connection there. It, it, singularity of focus. We, we don't take communion in, in a rushed way, generally speaking. We don't have other things going on around us. We're, we're single-tasking. We're not multitasking at that point. We're listening, and we're having bread in our hand, we're having wine in our hands. It, it's a focus. It's something we deliberately do as a church, collectively and personally, as we're sitting here doing this together. So there is a singularity of focus. And visual images. We've got bread and wine. They're visual, right? We're looking at them. Maybe it's visual, so we look at a scripture and think about what that means. So we've got all four of these. And I, I want to encourage us, just as we take communion in a moment here, to take advantage of what God has given us with the communion. Use it to its maximum. Enjoy the repetition. It should not have to be a dull repetition or something we just do without meaning. It doesn't have to be that way. And, and embrace the repetition. Embrace the emotional connection. And think about what Jesus has done for us. What the wine represents his bloodshed for us. Uh, make the most of the focus, the singularity of focus, and, and put aside other thoughts, other concerns, and to focus on, on the cross. And, and look at those images. Don't just you know, let the bread be somehow there in the basket, there in your hand, there in your mouth, without a second thought. But consider for a moment what it means. Consider for a moment what that wine held in that little cup means. And I think we'll get much more out of the communion and of what Jesus has done for us. I like this quote, just to summarize this, from Tim Keller in a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and he talks about the cross. He says this about Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. And I think that very clearly and simply sums up what this is really all about. We're about to participate in the most important meal in the history of the world spiritually and by symbol. And it's the most important meal in the history of the world because it reminds us of the most important truth in the history of the world, which is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. What an amazing thought. So we'll take bread and wine in a moment. But first, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you haven't just provided us with us a fellow struggler or a sherpa or a sage, but you've given us your son to be our saviour. As we now take this bread and the wine, the symbols of his body and his blood, Father, we pray that the truth that these represent will move us, will, will shape our hearts and our minds, will 
Give us strength for the days ahead. Help us to set our hope on what is ahead and not just on what we see around us. Help us to enjoy the repetition of communion. Help us to be emotionally connected with what Jesus has done. Help us to have a clear focus as we take this bread and wine. And help us to imagine clearly what it was like to be in that upper room 2,000 years ago and to see Jesus break that bread and pass out the cup and tell his disciples, his friends, and to tell us by extension that we are dearly loved. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's pass around the bread and the wine.